And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, the day is April the 13th. 103rd day of the year. 262 days remain till the year is over with. And it's... uh. A pleasant day in West Texas. On this date, in uh, 1111, Henry V is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. Of course, by that point in time, the empire wasn't holy and it wasn't primarily Roman. In 1204, Constantinople falls to the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade, temporarily put an end to the Byzantine Empire. Sixteen twelve, one of the epic samurai duels in Japanese history. Miyamoto Musashi defeats Sasaki Kohiro at uh, Funajima Island. And that's what we ought to have in wars. The leader of each country fights it out in what's basically a cage match. You wouldn't have near as many wars. 1613, Samuel Argyle, having captured Pocahontas at uh, Passabatonizzi, Virginia, sets off with her to Jamestown with the intention of exchanging her for English prisoners held by her father. 1699, the Sikh religion is formalized as the Khalsa, Brotherhood of the Warrior Saints, by Guru Gobind Singh in northern India, in accordance with the Anakshahi calendar. 1742, George Frederick Handel's Oratorio, Messiah, makes its world premiere in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, 1777, American Revolutionary War. American forces are ambushed and defeated at the Battle of uh, Bound Brook in New Jersey. 1829, the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829 gives Roman Catholics in the UK the right to vote and sit in Parliament. That was a major concession on the part of the powers of be. 1849, Lajos Kossuth presents the Hungarian Declaration of Independence on the closed session of the National Assembly. On this date in 1861, American Civil War, Fort Sumter surrenders to Confederate forces. It was an island in the middle of the harbor cut off from everything, so what do you think? 1865, American Civil War, Raleigh, North Carolina is occupied by Union forces. In this date in 1870, New York City, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is founded. 1873, the Colfax Massacre. More than 60 to 150 black men are murdered in Colfax, Louisiana, while surrendering to a mob of former Confederate soldiers and members of the Ku Klux Klan. One point in time, the KKK literally controlled the southern part of the United States. If you weren't a member of the Klan, you couldn't be elected to office. 1909, the 31st of March incident leads to the overthrow of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. 1919, Bang massacre. British Indian Army troops led by Brigadier General Reginald Dyer killed approximately 379 to 1,000 unarmed uh, demonstrators, including men and women in Amritsar, India, and about 1,500 more were inj- uh, injured. 1941. Pact of neutrality between the USSR and Japan is signed. 1943, World War II. Discovery of mass graves of Polish prisoners of war killed by Soviet forces in the Katyn Forest massacres announced, causing a diplomatic rift between the Polish government in exile in London and the Soviet Union, which, of course, denied all responsibility. 1943, the Jefferson Memorial is dedicated in Washington, D.C. on the 200th anniversary of President Thomas Jefferson's birth. 1944, relations between New Zealand and the Soviet Union are established. 
1945, World War II, German troops killed more than a thousand political and military prisoners in Gardelgen, Germany. 1945, World War II, Soviet and Bulgarian forces capture Vienna. 1948, in an ambush, 78 Jewish doctors, nurses, and medical students from Hadassah Hospital and a British soldier massacred by Arabs in uh, Sheikh Jarrah. The event became known as the Hadassah Medical Convoy Massacre. Once again, we got death and destruction based on how you believe. And that's just wrong. 1953, CIA Director Alan Dulles launches the mind control program known as Project MKUltra that may have had a part in the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy. 1958, American pianist Van Cliburn is awarded first prize in the inaugural International Tchaikovsky Competition in Moscow. 1960, the U.S. launches Transit 1B, the world's first satellite navigation system, the forerunner of our current GPS system. 1964, at the Academy Awards, Sidney Poitier becomes the first African-American male to win the Best Actor Award for the 1963 film Lilies of the Field. 1970, an oxygen tank on board Apollo 13 service module explodes, putting the crew in danger and causing major damage to the Apollo command and service module while en route to the moon. 1972, the Universal Postal Union decides to recognize the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate Chinese representative, effectively expelling the Republic of China, administering Taiwan. 1972, Vietnam War. Battle of An Lok begins. 1975, an attack by the Phalangist Resistance kills 26 militia members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, marking the start of the 15 year Lebanese Civil War. 1976, U.S. Treasury Department reintroduces the $2 bill as a Federal Reserve note on Thomas Jefferson's 233rd birthday as part of the United States Bicentennial Celebration. 1976, 40 workers die in an explosion at the Lapua Ammunition Factory, deadliest accidental disaster in modern history in Finland. They make some of the best sniper rifles in the world. 1996, two women and four children were killed after an Israeli helicopter fired rockets at an ambulance in Mansouri, Lebanon. 1997, Tiger Woods becomes the youngest golfer to win the Masters Tournament. 2010, Aero Union Flight 302 crashes on approach to Monterey International Airport, kills all six on board along with one person on the ground. And as I've said before, if you're hit by a falling airplane, you're having a bad day. Now, 2017, U.S. drops the largest ever non-nuclear weapon on Nangahar Province in Afghanistan. Well, on that note, we have finished our little history segment and I've talked about a number of off the wall things on this show and you know when you do a talk show and I've been on the air in one form or another for over 30 years now actually my first show went on the air in 19... 90. And I started out on uh, KORG Radio in Anaheim, California. Until politics reared its ugly head. You know, somebody's always unhappy when you're better known than they are. Or you've got a more popular show than they do. So rather than raise their game, they try to tear you down. And that's happened more than once in my radio career. Now doing it, uh, the way I'm doing it is basically a, a podcast, though I do interview folks from time to time. Um, if you don't like it, don't listen. I'm heard around the world. Um, I've got reported listeners in over a dozen countries. And, 
you know, you send me an email. If you got a topic you want me to talk about, I'll be more than happy to discuss it. Uh, I've been doing ghosts, but I got an email requesting me to talk about um, basically strangeness in Texas. And there's a lot of it, let me tell you. In fact, um, there's more lost and hidden treasure in uh, this state than almost any other. And I've been an amateur treasure hunter for a good number of years. Um, you know, when the Spanish first came to this continent, it wasn't looking for new lands. It was basically a treasure hunt. There are many legends of uh, strange things in the state of Texas especially. And however many legends of other kinds there may be, the buried treasure or lost mine legend is the, the best known legend of Texas. And just how representative it is is... Uh, Something we'll talk about, but the various examples I'm going to give of legends of buried treasure and lost mines. There is, um, <coughs> excuse me, according to um, history, the Spanish uh, worked but one mine in what before 1836 was the state of Texas. That was a Los Almagres on the San Zada River, which opened up about 1757. And though the history of the San Saba Mission and the San Saba Presidio is cleared and well known, little is known of the history of the mine itself. Now, it's really doubtful if it ever paid all that much. Certainly captains and commanders were always urging the Spanish viceroy to equip the large presidio on the San Saba to protect the mines. There was a Captain uh, Villarreal who's reported to have sent a, uh, an urgent plea to the viceroy for more troops to protect the mine two days ride from Corpus Christi, which he said had been overrun and taken by Indians. But uh, you can't read too much into the the request of the Spanish commanders. Most of them were notorious uh, thieves, paying their men in goods with enormous profit to themselves, and frequently carrying on uh, their payroll the names of men that they had enlisted only to immediately discharge, or some that they hadn't enlisted at all. You know, there are old reports that it furnished documentary evidence uh, to many a treasure hunter. Santa Ana's army, although it was well furnished when it crossed over into Texas from Mexico, and although it provided some fair plunder to the Texans at San Jacinto, couldn't, thanks to, uh, have dropped off any chest of money in Texas. We know that through the uh, research of Dr. E.C. Barker, professor of American history at the University of Texas. According to Dr. Barker, the Mexican troops in Texas, especially garrison troops, were poorly paid, if at all. If they got uh, three hots in a cot, they were ecstatic. Well, you know, there's been so many stories of lost treasures. And when you get right down to it, um, well, when I was stationed in South America, there were several different units. I was in the, the major, uh, one of the two major battalions. But there were a number of uh, attached units. And one of them had two NCOs who were actually professional treasure hunters. The Army was their hobby. And they, uh, they showed me proof of their successes. There's a Fort 
on the uh, the golf uh, side, Calfort San Lorenzo. It was the one Henry Morgan had to uh, defeat before he could uh, land his troops to uh, or his pirate crews to to go and take uh, Panama City. And if you went down to the water level, the cannons that made Fort San Lorenzo such a danger to anybody who tried to invade were laying in the water. And the Spanish troops also used to uh, go swimming in the afternoons because it gets hotter and blue blazes down there. And they didn't have bathing trunks as we do today. They went in in their trousers. And if they had anything in their pockets, quite often it wound up going into the, the water. And I was showed a uh, cigar box overflowing with Spanish coins that had come out of the water at the base of Fort San Lorenzo. Um, and some of the stories that I've never seen written but I was told about there would boggle your, boggle your mind at the sheer amount of wealth that was available. Uh, prime example, when Henry Morgan left Panama City after um, basically stripping the city of anything worthwhile, when he got to the where he uh, was going to uh, go out to his ships, that vast treasure couldn't be found. Nobody has any idea what happened to it. Well, I've got to know some special forces guys. And they told me an interesting story. They said they had been exploring up in the hills on the Atlantic side of the Isthmus. And there were some caves up there they discovered. And in one of the caves, they discovered a bunch of chests sitting back against the back wall. Well, these were old-style chests, like you'd find on a sailing ship. And as they got ready to swoop in for what they thought was going to be a great payday, one of the guys in the lead stopped them and said, look down. And the sandy floor of the cave was moving like it was water. Well, it was the largest snake bed they had ever seen. They said there were hundreds of snakes just rolling in the sand. Well, they decided, there were, I think, four of them, they'd go back down to Cologne, which was the major uh, city on the... Uh, Atlantic side of the isthmus, and they would get gasoline and pour that gasoline down and set fire to it and burn the snakes out. And you know, these were SF guys, these were experienced soldiers, but they were also excited as hell. And as they went down the hip, now in Panama, if you've never been there, it's either up or down, there's a very little flat. And as they went down, um, the um, high ground, they marked their trail so they could find their way back to the cave because it was in the middle of, somebody can be two feet from you in the jungle and you can't see them. Well, the problem is they marked their trail on the upper side of the trees, which meant as you came back up the the trail, you couldn't see the marks. So literally, they couldn't find their way back. They knew generally where, but they couldn't find the cave. 
And then, of course, the, the Army had duties for him elsewhere. But somewhere in the jungle above Cologne is a cave. And in the cave is what everyone believes is the loot that Henry Morgan took from uh, Panama City when he uh, captured it. You know, one of the best-known treasure uh, legends in Texas is the story of the San Saba Mine, also known as the Bowie Mine, named after Jim Bowie. In Spanish chronicles, it's known as the La Mina de los Amagres, or simply Los Amagres. Also, the Las Amarillas, sometimes La Mina de los Iguanas, or the Lizard Mine. And it's called the Lizard Mine based on the fact the ore was said to be found in chunks that were referred to as uh, iguanas. And El Magre, of course, means red earth. Now, to discover a rumored Silver Hill somewhere to the north, several attempts were made uh, before about 1650 from both Nuevo Leon and Nueva Vizcaya, which were, uh, but they were frustrated by the um, Indian hostilities. You know, the um, <coughs> the Pueblo Revolt literally tore apart what was referred to as New Spain. In fact, uh, the Indians set out to kill every non-Indian north of the Rio Grande. And a whole lot of folks came down to um, El Paso to cross over into to Mexico. Um, Bernardo de Miranda did a prospecting tour in the Llano country in 1756. And he reported back the principal vein is more than two square bars thick. And from a distance, the upper part of it looks to be more like 30 bars wide. We met Indians who assured us that on the, beyond the Amagres were larger and richer uh, deposits. And we found an abundance not only of ore, but of pure silver. That the mines of Cerro de Amagre were so numerous. That uh, Miranda pledged to give him himself to give the inhabitants of the province of Texas one each without any man being prejudiced in the, the measurements. In fact, there was just so much wealth for the taking that um, it literally boggled the minds of the explorers. Well, in part because an opulence and abundance of silver and gold was the principal foundation upon which the kingdom of Spain rested, according to the royal viceroy of Mexico, an immediate uh, establishment of mission in Presidio on the San Samba River was undertaken and the mining enterprise presumably launched. There was something called the Royal Fifth that the Mexican viceroys were very careful to adhere to. One-fifth of any wealth found was automatically the property of the King of Spain. So, of course, the, uh, the Spanish officials tried their best to get as much of the wealth as they could back to Spain. Now, the rumor of the Hill of Silver developed into the epic legend of Texas. History, of course, has recorded the foundation and the failure of the San Saba Mission in Presidio. So, um, I'm really not going to uh, go into that particularly. And it's been singularly reticent on the subject of the mines. In general. Um... 
though there is knowledge that even Miranda opened uh, a major mind called the Boyd Shaft. It was on Honey Creek, 50 or 60 miles from the mission. That, uh, you know, the fullest essay yet made it treating the, the subject of the mind just to be found in a pamphlet by uh, John Warren Hunter entitled The Rise and Fall of the Mission San Saba. And attached to that pamphlet is uh, a brief history of the boy or the Amagra's mind. Now the implication from history is that the mines were closed with the abandonment of the San Saba Presidio in 1769. But inasmuch as the nearest military protection was more than 50 miles away and was able to hold its own against the Comanches and other hostile tribes, it's doubtful whether the mines were ever worked to any great extent. Keep in mind, the fiercest tribe north of the Rio Grande were the Comanches. It was so fierce even the Apaches, who didn't fear anything, were afraid to tangle with the Comanches. Now, as late as 1812, there is evidence that uh, some of the mines were being worked. And it was claimed Mexico was preparing to reopen the mines when um, the Aturbid fell in 1823. But with the evidence at hand, it'd be idle speculation to go further into the history of the mines. Um, you know, the mines may have been worked consistently, but it wasn't a major undertaking. And certainly, uh, they may have paid enough to make a small group of people very happy to continue working them. According to one report found in the Miranda documents, the ORS said uh, 11 ounces to the pound. And that is a rich mine. There was a report made in 1812 by Don Ignacio Abregon, who signed himself Inspector Reality Lamenas, announced an analysis of $1,680 to the ton in $1812. But this Don Ignacio report of assays was uh, was considered by many to be in the same category as uh, the treasure maps. They were offered for sale even when I was down in South America. According to the recent U.S. government report, the Yano Country, Texas, shows uh, no evidence of gold or silver in paying quantities. Now, it is true that Miranda was ordered to take 30 mule loads of ore to Mexico to be carefully assayed. And according to some traditions, all the ore of Texas mines was transported to Mexico to be smelted. On the other hand, the ruins of sundry smelters have been reported by treasure hunters. And the point is that there are quite a lot of legends about 17 and 30 or 40 jackloads of buried bullion that may have been uh, derived from the actual transportation of a pack train of crude ore. Keep in mind that the Spanish allowed individual miners to to ship personal amounts along with what was going back uh, to the king. Now while history is doubtful, legends thrive. And uh, you could write an entire book about the Amagri's mine. Uh, the legend and its color, variety, and luxuriance has reached into the literature of England and continental Europe. Reverted with a thousand-fold increase to the Mexican land of its birth. And it's talked about in camps and households and offices of a century of American cowboys and rangers and miners and farmers and bankers and lawyers and anybody else you can think of. Now, a name that resonated throughout the story of the search for these mines was, of course, Jim Bowie. 
who is, on the one hand, very well known in regard to the Alamo, but, uh, you know, he was a, uh, we don't have the type of biography of him we do of, say, Davy Crockett. Now, boy, he was a colorful, colorful, one more time, colorful, and uh, aggressive soldier of fortune. And he was a successful slave runner. We know in the early 20s, he and his brother, Resin Bowie, came to San Antonio, and that from the beginning, he had one eye open to achieve a quick fortune. And he prospected for gold and silver on the Frio River. Now, he must have been rather credulous. That is natural to men with untrained imagination and bounding lust for adventure. His uh, action in the so-called grass fight uh, is one example. And while he was in hot-headed quest of the San Saba mine, he engaged in one of the most brilliant Indian fights of those days. Thousands of men, he believed, he continued to believe, he knew where untold riches uh, waiting to be picked up. He died at the Alamo, carrying with him a secret so as potent to render him immortal as his part in achieving the independence of Texas. If, in fact, he knew where a mine of untold wealth was, Never had a chance to enjoy it. Now, according to several early works, um, there are a dozen different stories about how Bowie became involved with the um, I became known as the Bowie Man. Now, according to Wes Burton of Austin, Texas, who has been a well-known treasure hunter, I've heard about him for years, you shouldn't think that there was any such thing as the Bowie Man. You can follow a lead if you hit it and locate any mine, but there's not any that's going to go to something that's called the Bowie Mine. That wasn't a mine at all, but a storage for bullion taken from the San Saba, the Austin Magris mines. The Spanish had a fort on the San Saba that was destroyed three times, and the Indians were on the warpath constantly. And under those conditions, a strong, scared place had to be found for storing the bullion as it was smelted out of the the ground. And that place was somewhere on the Llano... um, in it were stored 500 jackloads of silver bullion when the Indians ran the Spanish out the last time and destroyed the mines. And it was this storage facility that uh, Bowie found and that he tried to get control of. <clears throat> now, the Yano region roamed and ruled a band of Lipan. That chief was for a long time he was in the habit of leading his people down to San Antonio every year to trade off some of the bullion they had stolen from the Spaniards he never took much at a time before their wants were simple and the Spaniards and the Mexicans of San Antonio thought that the ore had been chipped off some rich vein as there was a little bit of gold in it (coughs) keep coughing Of course, the Spaniards and the Mexicans of San Antonio tried to learn the source of this wealth, but the Indians had a tribal understanding that whoever should uh, reveal the place of the mineral should be bound and tortured to death. So no Lipa never broke his agreement. And at length, the people of San Antonio grew accustomed to the silver-bearing Lippins and gave up trying to find their secret. But then came the curious Americans. Now, Bowie was smart. He laid his plans carefully. And he at once began to cultivate the friendship of the Lipans. Went back east for a fine rifle plated with silver. When it came, he presented it to the chief. A powwow was held. Bowie was invited to join the tribe. And formerly by the San Pedro Springs, he was adopted into the tribe. And now followed months of life with the Indians. 
Bowie was expert at shooting the buffalo, and he was foremost in fighting against the enemies of the Leapin. Some say he even married the chief's daughter. He became so thoroughly a member of the tribe and was so useful a warrior that his adopted brothers finally showed him the source of their precious mineral. And he expected much, but he could hardly expected to see what was literally millions of dollars even at that time. The sight seemed to overthrow all caution and judgment. Almost immediately, he deserted the Indians and went back to San Antonio to raise a force to go seize the treasure. Well, at this point, he was between a rock and a hard place, and he wanted too large a body of men to share the wealth with. He must have, but he had to have a considerable uh, uh, force to um, overcome the Indians' resistance. And he took time in arranging the campaign. Now the old chief died, and a young warrior named uh, Tresmano succeeded to his position. And soon afterwards, he came with his people to San Antonio for their annual bartering trip. Well, there he ran into Bowie and accused him of treachery, and Bowie almost killed him. Time was at hand for Bowie to start on his campaign, and he left San Antonio with uh, 34 men. Well, they had 34 had promised to go with him. Actually, he only had uh, 10 show up on the day they were going to leave. Among them were his brother, Resin. The fewness of the members though, didn't deter uh, Jim Boy. He was determined to reach the site of the mineral. Whether smelted bullion or natural vein of crude oil, legend doesn't really agree, but they were going to establish a stockade there and proceed with exploration. Well, some distance north of San Antonio in the hills, he met a friendly band of Indians who warned him that uh, Tres Manos was on the warpath against him and his rumored invasion. But in spite of that, boy, pressed on. November 21st, 1831, near Calf Creek in what's now McCulloch County, Texas, a little party was attacked at sunrise by 164 Indians. Texans had one man killed and two wounded and lost their horses. The Indians, according to their own subsequent report, had 80 men killed besides a great many wounded. 1905, uh, a writer described the remains of the barricade hastily constructed by the Boy Party as being still traceable and added that the barricade would be almost uh, intact but for the hand of the impious treasure seeker. Generally said, the Battle of Calf Creek marked Bowie's last attempt to get to the San Saba mine. And so the last few years of his life were taken up with the duties of a patriot. According to one legend current in the San Saba country, on the word of Mr. Carlos Ashley, a native, uh, Bowie was seeking a San Saba treasure in order to finance the Texas Army. This was the patriotic theme also of a Texas novel in which Bowie was the hero. William Stoddard wrote a book called The Last Gold of the Montezumas, the story of the Alamo. According to uh, Matt Bradley, editor and publisher of Border Wars of Texas, three months before Bowie left in the, fell in the Alamo, he was trying again to reach the riches, which he alone among uh, Texans knew the secret. And some years ago, a man named Longworth, who's Went to Kansas, paid a Mexican in San Antonio $500 for a document purporting to have been taken off Bowie's body by a Mexican lieutenant who entered the Alamo immediately after the last defender had been killed. The Mexican who sold the document claimed the lieutenant as a paternal ancestor. According to him, that document gave directions to the mine. But in spite of the directions, supposedly uh, Longworth wasn't able to follow him. So, at the end of the day, Bowie's involvement with the San Saba mine was simply hunting for it. And what he was actually hunting for was not the mine itself, but what amounts to a strong room where what came from the mine was held. And because he was its greatest hunter, and because he's presumed to have found it, his name can be linked with it. But this... Uh, 
linking actually um, post dates and follow the Alamo. In fact, the Bowie Mine um, name wasn't really used all that much until after the American Civil War. All the earlier histories and books of travel that mention the mines, and there are a great many of them, referred to them as the San Saba Mines. The Bowie Mine was a popular coinage of the last half of uh, the 19th century. And now the legend of the mine is living uh, to no small extent by virtue of the being associated with Jim Bowie. Now the San Samba Presidio is 50 miles or more away from the mines it's supposed to have protected. Now not all the lost mine hunters by any means have agreed uh, in locating the mine or mines on Honey, um, Honey Creek. It's been located on the the Yano, on the San Saba, up and down, across and beyond. Many hunters assert the numerous mines were scattered over a wide belt extending in a general way from the Colorado westward along the courses of the Yano and the San Saba to the uh, Nusas Canyon, Oklahoma uh, Canyon, as the Spanish called it. The vast part of the bullion buried in Texas legends supposed to have come from the mines in this area. And some of the early Texas writers, uh, credulous of mineral deposits in the state, have had an immense influence on hunters for the San Saba mines, who are often readers of old and out-of-the-way books. And these hunters argued it as the early writers were near the source of history, and then their skeptical successors, they must be more reliable. That's not always the case, though. Now, there are three, actually, there are two very well-known legends from the Yano country. The uh, first came from uh, an account written in signed SSP that appears in the Galveston News many years ago. It's attributed to one of the rangers who actually made the find. And the second legend appeared in the Galveston News, uh, signed by uh, Nancy Evans Bauer of Cherokee, Texas. Now, the Lost Rangers, as they were called, discovered what was called the Brook of Gold. Back in the early 40s, the main camp of McCulloch's Rangers was located in Hamilton's Valley on the Colorado. And from this point, they scouted far and wide against hostile Indians. Now, when I say the 40s, I'm probably, as you might guess, referring to the 1840s. And while two of the rangers were out on one such scouting expedition, their horses got away during the night, and in attempting to find them the next morning, they got lost themselves in a dense fog that enveloped the hills and the valleys. So they wandered all day in a vain attempt to regain their camp. And it was a hot summer in a time of long drought, and they were in a region utterly devoid of water. Well, when night came, they laid down on the ground, suffering from hunger and thirst. The next morning, they struck out early, hoping to find themselves before the heat of the day came on, or at least find some water. And although they climbed many hills to view the land, every prospect was desolate and unfamiliar. At length, from the summit of the low hill range of hills, they discovered a narrow green, green valley and down in a line of green trees. And they traced the course of a, a mountain brook by following the greenery. Descending, they stood soon on the banks of a stream of clear water that danced over a pebbly bottom of fine, almost pure white gravel with here and there shallow pools sparkling under the noonday sun. Well, having found water, they rested and refreshed themselves laid flat on the margin and took long drinks of the crystal water. As one of the rangers, after the first pangs of his thirst was satisfied, and looking into the sparkling waters, he was startled to discover the entire bottom was covered with minute shining particles. He called out to his companion when he recognized what it was and said, we've lost our horses, our saddles, and guns, but near something better. Here's gold. Gold without end. The particles which were as thick among the sand and gravel as if sown by the handful were yellow like gold and of the size of very coarse uh, 
corn bran. Before leaving the place, they gathered a quantity of the yellow particle and tied them in a handkerchief. On their way out, they stopped to rest high up on the western shoulder of a long, rugged hill. They discovered the fork of a stunted live oak tree with an ancient rust-eaten pick embedded in it. The handle was gone. and went in so encased in the growth of the tree that the pick couldn't be removed. The other end uh, pointed toward the head of the little stream they had uh, just left. That's when they realized they weren't the first to have discovered this gold mine but that some prospector overtaken maybe by sudden death had left his mark. Late in the afternoon, they saw looming in the distance Paxano Mountain on the Yano, and from the well-known landmark, they found their bearings and soon safely back in McCulloch's camp in Hamilton's Valley. Later, they exhibited their bandana of gold in the village of San Marcos. A man there versed in the subject of minerals pronounced it virgin gold and said it was what miners called drift gold, which had been washed downstream from a mother load. That mother load, he said, might be miles away, but wherever it was, it must be extremely, extremely rich. A many a long tramp ride, and after years, the rangers sought that golden pool, and, but they never did find it again. You finger the old pick on the mountainside maybe still points to the spot where the lost mine it may be found and the grim tale of the Yano County still stands silent guard over the secrets of that wealth that uh, they found and then lost. And then there's a story about the smelter that's on the little Yano. Are they part of the... Um, 1800s uh, mining parties composed principally of Mexicans but usually led by two or more white men were quite common in the mineral belt of Texas. Mining was carried on under great difficulties in a very crude way. Country was a wilderness inhabited only by uh, roving bands of hostile Indians and wild animals. Only means of transportation with the small Mexican burrows. Panniers made of cowhide and packed with provisions, tools, and other necessities of the miners were strapped to the backs of these patient, patient, docile little animals. And after the furnace was constructed, the, the burrows conveyed ore from the mine to the, the furnace for smelting. You know, the oldest smelter in Texas is right here in El Paso. The mineral was buried as it came from the smelter because nobody knew what moment the Indians might sweep in to attack. Also a rule among the miners when moving and returning to the settlement to bury their mineral treasure at night and build their campfire over it. Thus having it uh, securely hidden in case of an attack by the Indians. In the year of 1865 an ancient man came to San Saba County in search of an old furnace. After searching for it for days he confided to some ranchmen in the area that in 1834 he and another white man and 35 Mexicans were Engaged in mining near the little Yano River. They found, he said, a rich mine and had taken out 1,200 pounds of gold and silver, which they buried together with $500 in Mexican silver coins. They're accustomed to conceal their opening to the mine after conveying a month's supply to the furnace. They just completed a month's run and were preparing to return to the mine for another supply when the Indians swooped down on them. Killed everybody except the two white men and a Mexican girl who were at the spring some distance from the furnace. Stranger went on to say that the treasure was buried on a high hill half a mile due north from the furnace. At 75 yards from the furnace and a direct line between the furnace and the spot where the treasure was buried stood a, a pin oak tree and a knot hole of which a rock had been driven. He offered $500 to anybody who'd guide him to the furnace. Well, as you might guess, half a dozen men turned out to assist in the search, but it proved fruitless. He then informed the ranchman he and his partner and the Mexican girl after their escape from the Indians made their way to Mexico where they filed a chart of the mine with the Mexican archives as were required by the laws of Mexico of which Texas at that point in time was part. A copy of the chart was retained by his partner who in 1865 was living in St. Louis having married the Mexican girl. The old man didn't started on a long overland ride to St. Louis to induce his partner to help him in the search for the treasure buried in 1834. Short time afterwards, it was learned that while he 
was mounting his horse in Williamson County. His gun was accidentally discharged and killed him instantly. Accidentally, yeah. No further attempts was made to locate the furnace until 1878 when a man named Medlin, hearing the story, engaged a, to herd sheep for a ranchman whose uh, ranch was situated in that section of the country. And every day while herding sheep, he prosecuted his uh, search for the furnace. Well, within a year, his search was rewarded with success. He found the ruins of the old furnace, the spring, the tree with the rock in it, and also high up on the hill, He found the area where the treasure was supposed to have been buried, but he never did find the treasure. He did find, on digging into the furnace, the skeleton of a man, and by its side, what was called a minor spoon made of burnt soapstone used for amalgamating um, minerals with quicksilver. According to uh, Nancy Evans Brower, uh, Bauer, who told the story in the news, uh, Medlin, while showing her a spoon, told her the story substantially as I've given it to you today. And shortly afterwards, Medlin left for South America. And from Medlin's description, she went and found the furnace and the, the tree with the rock in the knot hole. So she believes the story is true, that the treasure is there and Anybody who will take the trouble to procure a copy of the chart from the archives of Mexico should be able to easily find it. Now, if the treasure is there, I would have to say, in my humble opinion, the man and his Mexican wife probably went back and re uh, retrieved it. And that's what they're living on in St. Louis. Well, on that note, because at the end of today's show, I thought I'd give you a break from ghosts in Las Vegas with today's um, story about uh, lost treasures in Texas. We're going to be talking about many topics. Um, because as long as I can manage to, to talk, I'm going to keep doing a show. And we're going to talk about every topic you can imagine. But until tomorrow, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.